Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sadman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network's podcast network, available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the usual places to get your podcasts. Please join us every two weeks for our new episodes of Battle Rhythm, and also check out the other podcasts in our network. Uh, you can find them, again, on our website or at the CDSN Podcast Network on your favorite podcast provider. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located in unceded Algonquin Territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Thank you. Uh, welcome back to Battle Rhythm. Today we have uh, as our co-host Anessa Kimball, who is a Laval professor gallivanting throughout much of Europe, hanging out in the Czech Republic these days, uh, researching NATO centers of excellence. How are you doing, Anessa? I'm great. Uh, tell us what you're doing. You're on sabbatical, right? So you're you're yes. tromping around Europe. What are you doing? And so um, as part of the CDSN Minds grant on uh, the theme, which is working on climate change and security, one of the projects that we had proposed is in association with Canada's very soon to be opened uh, and already established Center of Excellence on Climate Change and Security. And so this project aims at studying, it's called Lessons Learned from Centers of Excellence. And I picked five established centers of excellence that are located in Central and Eastern Europe. And I have been going to those various centers and interviewing the people that work there, so the subject matter experts, the folks that kind of do the management, civilians, um, visiting the facilities to kind of learn what it is like to host a facility in terms of financial resources, staffing, but also what these centers do in terms of their programs of work, their outputs, and mm -hmm. also that link of trying to understand how the centers transfer knowledge and their expertise back to NATO, back to Allied Command Transformation, and back to the contributing nations of the centers. And so really, to me, it was a kind of puzzle that would, that brought together my interests on uh, defense cooperation with burden sharing around um, these institutions that I found were quite understudied um, by IR scholars and even by NATO experts. And so what has been the biggest surprise thus far? So my biggest surprise thus far has been, I would say, learning a bit about the inside of these centers in terms of the types of experts um, that are at the centers, uh, also learning more the specifics about how the centers try to make themselves useful and relevant for NATO. Because we have to keep in mind that Canada is opening the 30th center. Um, and so these aren't just a few little centers here and there, but the fact that we don't know very much about these centers, you know, systematically was also rather interesting to me because when you look across the centers, it appears some are well-known and very active, like STRATCOM on strategic communications, like CyberDef, you know, on, on computer cyber defense. And then there are others that people have barely heard of. And so really trying to understand what makes some of them you know, kind of flourish and expand and others of them really, you know, 
stay stable and don't grow that much. And so we're trying to understand the dynamics that contribute contribute to that happening because obviously the goal at the end of the day is to advise the Canadian government about you know mm. how how they can facilitate um, making the center that's going to be located in Montreal a success in the next couple of years. Excellent. And the five places all why did you choose those five? I chose those five for a couple of reasons. First off, um, I was interested in uh, understanding more the contributions of Central and Eastern European countries to NATO. I think that as burden sharing scholars, we may be a little bit guilty of this, that we tend to focus on kind of the major countries, um, often compare Canada to those countries. But the reality is, and empirically, we know that, you know, the majority of NATO nations are not those very strong countries or not those kind of big countries. And NATO now at 32 nations is, is a lot is a much different game than it was 75 years ago, you know, when you had a dozen nations. And so trying to understand how those countries see the center of excellence as a contribution to the institution, but also as a way to highlight their expertise and the niches in which they kind of have a certain skill sets, I thought was really important, particularly as Canada goes and does these reflections about its own um, defense environment. And then the other thing I thought was uh, important was this is a conjunction as well, a, a moment in history where Central and Eastern Europe is also under a level of you know tension and under a level of threat. Um, and NATO has been playing a role there. And so there is also a, a little bit of an interest in just going and being on the ground in these countries that are close to what is going on in Ukraine and see how the public and how the people in the military and defense foreign affairs establishment um, are thinking about that again this project is not at all on that conflict that's going on but to me i thought it was interesting because we are asking all of our all european countries north america north american countries to give lots of military and financial support but they still also have to do all of their you know normal things that they have committed to nato and these centers of excellence are one of the things that that nations host and they've committed and so you know, these countries are still trying to make it work, even though they have less resources um, mm -hmm. to do it. So, you know, to me, that was also interesting. Well, fantastic. And, and of course, the most important question is which countries have the best food? <laughs> Depends on what you like. I can say that I had some excellent food for sure. I had, well, I mean, in Prague, I had very good food. But I think so far, the place that I've enjoyed the food the most was actually in Riga. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, uh, that was that was interesting. And the other thing I found is that I'm, I'm not somebody that drinks very much and I don't drink beer at all. But in almost all of these countries, it's far more cheaper to drink beer than to actually like get water or, <laughs> or something like that, like to, to the point that it's actually like you can get a whole bottle of wine for the cost that you would get for like a, a little bottle of like soda or a bottle of real juice, you know, 100% juice. And so I think that that's also a little bit interesting. And of course, you know, some of these countries are countries that um, people are pretty open with drinking at all times of the day, nine o'clock in the morning, you're in the airport, people are drinking their first beer of the day. So that's a little bit of a change from the culture I'm used to in Canada. We at least usually wait till, you know, beer o'clock, which is sometimes in the afternoon. Uh, that sounds good to me as a beer drinker. I, I think that sounds very attractive. Yes. Uh, while you've been away, things have been going on in the world. And we were actually talking on Friday about what we talk about this week for our podcast. We're taping this on Monday, October 9th. And something happened over the course of the weekend, which is that Hamas launched a series of attacks against Israel. Israel is responding. And 
we are international relations professors, but we are not Middle East experts. And so I thought it would be useful for us to talk about how do we follow this kind of event that's at the edges of our expertise, but that aren't things that we're expert about, but people will come to us and ask us questions about it. And of course, it affects the way we think about things. And so it's you know bumped into some of the things I used to research, some things I still research, and I'm sure it bumps into some of the things that you've been looking at, such as defense cooperation. And the first question is, is how did you find out about this and, and, how, and what were your first reactions? I found out about it in ways that you're probably not really supposed to. I opened up my Twitter in the morning and I saw, you know, uh, everything mm -hmm. that there were many, many, um, you know, comments on it. And so I would say it was not necessarily up in front in like the, in the media around here. But, you know, I, and I would never recommend to people to probably get their news from Twitter. <laughs> but um, that was how I found out about it. Uh, for me, I would say, you know, one of the I often use the example when I teach about, um, you know, uh, Robert Putnam's two level games. And, you know, he has this nice figure in the article where he talks about kind of indifference curves and how you kind of trade off across issues. And that's how you create what he calls this win set, right? The lens of agreement where you're going to have a possible agreement. And I often use um, this example of Israel and Palestine to talk about the fact that there is no win set that will exist because there are so many issues that are salient that it's impossible to create that bargaining space. Um, and I think, you know, what we're seeing now is just continues with that example that you can have a period in which, you know, there's a lull in an open conflict, but that, that, that kind of underground, that, that seething kind of underground distrust is going to be there. And frankly, it's going to be very difficult, particularly because as we know, fighting over territory, um, even though like Jim Farron told us that it should be divisible. So theoretically, we should be able to stop having conflict about it because you should be able to cut it in one way that will please everyone. But what you see when you look, of course, at the maps is that it's impossible to create a solution there where you would cut the territory and have everybody be happy and stop fighting about it. Um, and so, I mean, it's, it's extremely unfortunate to, to see this, you know, this return of violence, but I think, you know, to people that have followed the region, I don't think it's a shock to, to people that are, mm. that, that were really following the Middle East. You know, I think it was, it was the, the shock was more the, I think the organization level and the level of the, the violence, but not that there was a, re that there's a return of hostilities, not that there's mm -hmm. kind of a level of the reaction. That's the reaction that we have heard out of the, the Israeli government. What's your take on, you know, how did you learn about it? Um, what was your take? What's your take on it? Sure. Well, I did learn about it first by, I guess it was Blue Sky, maybe not Twitter. I, I'm on both these days. I'm trying to get off of Twitter, although it, it's still attempting because the journalists haven't moved over. To Blue Sky yet. But a lot of the academics have. So Blue Sky is, you know, most of the conversation is very academic-y. Uh, about about this stuff, and it's actually a lot more thoughtful than what you see on, on Twitter. When you mentioned the, in the visibility of territory of stakes, it reminded me of Stacey Goddard, who's a friend of mine who I've spoken to in a while. But she's written some really good books about and articles about how indivisibility is created. It's not something that exists or doesn't exist. So Jerusalem could be divided, for instance. Uh, Northern Ireland was divided. Uh, there are ways to to handle this, but then local opportunists will often try to create indivisibilities for their own local purposes and make things harder to divide. But when I was thinking about this, when I first saw it, I had some gut reactions. My family is has a Jewish background, and so it invokes that kind of identity stuff. But I'm also a scholar of ethnic conflict, and I 
understand that there are politics within the Palestinian community and politics within the, in the Israeli community, which both make this very, very difficult. I was part of an academic exchange that the academic exchange is a program that's been going on for, I don't know, maybe a dozen years, which takes groups of, ac of academics from North America and sends them through Israel for about a week. And we were always afraid that this was a propaganda effort to get us to be, buy into the Israeli story. But once you get there, you find out the Israelis are very divided about the stuff and the week-long uh, meetings, including meeting with Palestinians, that we met with some of the top people of the Palestinian Authority. Uh, we did not meet with any Hamas people, but we did travel to the very edge of Gaza. And it was very striking. That was like our second day. And one of the people who was you know, guiding us on this tour, this retired Israeli general, kind of used language that suggested Gaza was a prison, which I think wasn't, you know, within what we were expecting from a, a, an Israeli propaganda tour. And we were all looking around each other, noticing that. And then later on, he, he basically just referred to it as an open air prison. So you've got two million people who are imprisoned, who are denied their ability to, to move. And then the people of, uh, in there voted for Hamas, thinking that they were less corrupt and negligent than the Palestinian Authority. But it turns out Hamas had other agendas. And now this attack clearly represents Hamas's planning and desires. But it, the Palestinian people who live in there are going to pay the price for this. They are paying the price for this, as, as well as the Israelis. And so watching this play out has been very confusing because it makes sense that there's violence, but we still don't understand what Hamas's strategy was. People are talking about that this is irrational. It's like, well, we don't know if it's irrational until we know what their strategy is. We don't know what their goals are, what are they trying to do? So if they are trying to stop the normalization of Israel's relationship with other middle, with the Middle East, this may not be that irrational because Israel is, is already promising to, to react disproportionately because that's what they do. That's what they've always done. They, in fact, I was always struck by a conversation I had with a retired, different retired Israeli general on the day that we were in the Golan Heights. We were basically on the edge of Syria, Lebanon, and Israel. And the general, the retired journalist talked, he was very, very critical of Obama because Obama was too weak that when the United States would get hit by whatever terrorist stuff around the world, the United States wouldn't always hit back twice or three times as hard as it got hit. And I pointed out that doesn't necessarily stop things. It just leads to a spiral. It's like, yeah, but if you don't do that, you're weak. And I couldn't help but note that this was an attitude that I don't think it was, it was unique to this individual. And it wasn't an attitude that would breed any kind of enduring peace. And then during the the whole week, we got a lot of people talking and it, about the different elements. And it just seemed that they, were, that they were locked in, that there would be bouts of violence and that there was nothing to negotiate over because there was no, neither side saw a two-state solution being possible. And we've seen the radicalization of Israeli politics where Netanyahu is is not the most right-wing person in the cabinet. He's He's been more and more dependent on further right-wing parties, and that's led to uh, settler, radical settlers taking more and more territory uh, in, in the West Bank and engaging more and more violence against the Palestinians who are there. So there's not been any room on the Israeli side to negotiate. Hamas doesn't want to negotiate either because it thrives on having the tensions with Israel. So... You know, watching this, it's it's been really, really hard. I mean, the violence is so extreme. That, you know, people, on, you know, kids on both sides are getting slaughtered. And it's at a time where I, we can no longer trust Twitter to present things to us because the accounts that are amplified are those that are really problematic. Either yesterday or before that, uh, Musk was saying, here are the two accounts to follow on this. And one was wildly anti-Semitic. 
And so it was like, well, is that really a good source uh, for following this? I would say Elon Musk is not a good source for any <laughs> for any sort of follow people. But yes, I understand it's absolutely the case that there's disinformation, there's the wrong accounts being, and then there's wild rumors like, you know, people saying Russia or Iran. And uh, to me, this is, we don't have all the information, you know, no. we have a lot of incomplete information and it's extremely dangerous to start, you know, um, presuming that some countries are were involved, particularly when those countries, you know, um, for example, Russia, we would not want to make the wrong presumptions there and have something, you know, get out of hand because we are already, there's already an issue with Russia, you know, uh, in Ukraine. And so- yeah, there was one story that came out of the Wall Street Journal this weekend that was basically saying that it's the Iranians, the Iranians planned this thing. And what's interesting is the Iranians, Hamas, and the Israelis are all denying it. It's a one source story that's got a ton of play, but it's most most thinly uh, sourced. So we don't really know what's going on here. And the tendency is always to deny the agency of the folks on the ground. It's always easy to say Hamas is a tool of Iran, but Hamas is a tool of Hamas, and they are sometimes an agent of Iran, but they are they have their own agency themselves. So it's probably true that Iran knew something was up. There are now reports went out today that Egypt was warning the Israelis that something was up. Big conversation over the weekend was intelligence failure. How did the Israelis not know this since they have the most modern, most intensive surveillance state of anybody, and they thoroughly penetrate Gaza? So how could they be fooled by this? And my quick thought on that is I'm sure the Israelis got lots of information that suggested this might happen, but intelligence requires analysis and interpretation and ideology and wishful thinking tend to play a large role in this. Like this would be so stupid, but for Hamas to engage in all that attack, it's obviously that they can't do that. They're not going to do that because it would be so, so self-destructive. Well, just because it's self-destructive doesn't mean that somebody might not do something. And the thing that came to my mind was actually 9-11, not, not, not in the sense that how is this going to remake Israeli society, but in the sense that bin Laden's goal when he attacked, when, when Al-Qaeda attacked the United States was to provoke the United States. It wasn't to win a battle. It wasn't to avoid an attack upon Afghanistan. He was encouraging an attack upon Afghanistan. He didn't care about his host country. And ultimately, it led to a lot of his own people dying as, as the United States responded to that. But it also allowed the, you know, led the United States to be sucked into a war in Afghanistan that took 20 years and the United States ultimately was defeated. We didn't achieve our ultimate gate, you know, long lasting goals. The West was, you know, diminished as a result of this. They provided an opportunity structure to the United States for a war that uh, in 2003. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure that, that Bin Laden anticipated that, but the United States got sucked into a war in, in, in Iraq. This helped promote terrorism throughout the Middle East. So it was self-destructive to Al-Qaeda's organization in Afghanistan and to the state of Afghanistan. But it kind of made sense from what Bin Laden was trying to do. And it could be that Hamas is trying to do something similar, which is it's willing to sacrifice its own people and its own organization to block Israel's normalization, to radicalize people in the, in the Middle East so that something else may emerge after this. So I'm not going to, I'm not. I'm not going to say that they are irrational or unstrategic from doing this. We we just don't know what the strategy is because we don't know what the goals are. 
the idea of kind of denying agency to to terrorist groups is a, a bit like the very the, the classic kind of colonial western view as well it's like we have governments and are organized and you know you're not one of the things that this brings up a bit is like those decolonial narratives and you know frankly a lot of people saying that this is the situation that led to this was created decades ago by not resolving things and frankly, you know, kind of saying, okay, well, we're a very Western view of let's draw lines on a map and tell everybody to to be good. And that's not really how it works. And so I think that that's also something that, that needs a little bit of reflection, minimally, or at least a discussion in our classrooms, I would say. Yeah, and that, this is, that is a challenge. Is how do you talk about this in the classroom, right? I remember trying to talk about Israel in one job talk early in my career, and that was a bad idea because I, I, it invoked all kinds of stuff that I was not an expert on. I was an expert on international relations and ethnic conflict, and I spent most of my career when I was doing that stuff, avoiding Israel and, and Palestine, because it is so emotionally freighted. And we're seeing that in the United States. We're seeing that in Canada. We're seeing, you know, pro-Palestinian groups, uh, you know, have spontaneous protests or commemorations in favor of the Palestinians. Uh, yeah, can you tell me a little bit about the reaction in Canada? Because I've seen a couple images. I yeah. saw like uh, the Israeli uh, embassy or consulate in Montreal was under, under protection. Um, so... What's it like? <laughs> uh, well, we've seen some some pro-Palestinian protests. We've seen pretty much all major politicians in Canada come out in favor of Israel. The mayor of Toronto has come out with conflicting statements. Uh, it seems like every six hours she comes out with a different statement to uh, to try to not offend a different part of her constituency. I'm, I'm sorry to tell her, but in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you're always going to offend some constituency. In my career, some of the lowest teaching evaluations I got was the the semester I was teaching U.S. foreign policy when the United States invaded Iraq. And what I had not anticipated was I thought, hey, we'll use this as a great example to illustrate how does U.S. foreign policy work or not work? How does it function? You know, how does it make how people make decisions? But, you know, one half the class was pro-Palestinian, which meant that they were pro-Iraqi. And the other half were pro-Israel, which meant they were pro-American in that. And so the class got very, very divisive about the thing that we were trying to talk about. I was trying to talk about in dispassionate ways. So what's going on in Canada right now? As I said, the politicians are all very pro-Israeli on this. And some are, you know, out of the trap, flank each other. So the conservatives are, are accusing the Trudeau government of, of doing things that have made, made this happen, just like in the United States, the Republicans are accusing Biden of making this happen, which again, reduces the agency of all the actors. I mean, the, the United States was trying to negotiate or facilitate Israel's normalization with other countries. And that wasn't something that Hamas liked. But is this because the United States is not supporting Israel enough? I'm, I'm, I, I don't think we've seen the flow of arms to Israel decline in the past five years to suggest that Americans have become less supportive of Israel. But anyway, what else is going on in Canada? Well, we've seen some anti-Semitic violence in, in the UK. And just like whenever there is Islamist terrorism, you see uh, in, the, in the rest of the world, you usually see some folks in North America beating up on Sikhs because they have a bad time identifying Muslims. But you have, you know, Islamophobic violence in the aftermath of, of Islamist terrorists in other parts of the world. Uh, when the violence increases in the Middle East and the Israelis are killing Palestinians, that increases anti-Semitic violence in North America. So uh, I'm, I don't think I've seen reports of violence in Canada, but I'm not surprised that folks are trying to protect synagogues, Israeli embassies and consulates, that kind of thing, because violence is more likely during these times. So it, the violence does not stay in one spot. 
another part of the news today about violence not staying one spot is the real concern is whether Hezbollah is going to enter the fray. And they've, they've said basically that if Israel needs a ground offensive in Gaza, that Hezbollah will enter the fray. If Israelis are already preparing for that by attacking assets or targets on the other side of the border in Lebanon, there has been some attempts by some organizations in Lebanon, I think it's Palestinian Islamic Justice is the organization that has been trying to penetrate the border from the north. So the Israelis have been responding to those those incursions. It may not stop with Gaza. The violence may break out in other parts of the country. Um, I will say that Mark Lynch had a really good piece. Uh, there's a new outlet on the internet that you might have discovered called Good Authority, which is the successor to the monkey cage, which used to be at the Washington Post. And so it's a, a combination of, I don't know, 15, 20, 30 different political scientists who try to take what we know from political science and apply it to situations. And so Mark Lynch had a piece this morning about the five things to look for. I asked a question on Blue Sky and got really good answers, which is one of the questions that comes out of this is, will Israelis rally around Benjamin Netanyahu? That when you have an attack on like this, there's a tendency to have a rally around the flag effect, but rallies don't always happen. And so I am not up to date on the latest literature. So I just asked Blue Sky, because one does not look to Twitter anymore to be a good place for academics to have reasonable conversations. And I immediately got a reaction about, here's the state of the art on the research on when rallies happen or not. And a lot of it has to do with the pre-existing divisions within the society. Given how Netanyahu is already being blamed for this, that Israel was put in a very vulnerable position because most of its military was in the West Bank protecting settlers who were engaged in violence against the Palestinians there as they were trying to expand their, their territory in the West Bank. That left the Gaza area less defended. And so that's one of the reasons why you had so much success by Hamas. And that was because Netanyahu was dependent on a far-right uh, coalition that wanted more settler extremism, essentially. So we may see ben Netanyahu not get much of a bump in his popularity ratings. He may actually be the one who is held responsible for this because this is the most deaths of Israelis on any day or any weekend, pretty much in Israel's history. And that's including a bunch of different wars they fought. The, the level of violence, I think, is also something that the uh, unfortunately, the media has also done its part to kind of, you know, there's lots of images out there. There's lots of, you know, really kind of distasteful things going around. And that's also going to serve to kind of radicalize people, I think. I mean, we know that the more that those things are kind of repeated and reseen can also take that person that was maybe a little bit more moderate and, and shift their thinking. And so I think how this will unfold over the next, the coming days, weeks, hopefully, you know, I don't want to go into months, but, you know, right now is, is, you know, it's definitely all hands on deck for the folks that are, that are experts in the Middle East. And I mean, the folks that actually, you know, have training, yep. and people became experts overnight. Because that's the other thing we see, uh, people who are experts on the, the conflict in, in Ukraine now all of a sudden they have a new expertise. <laughs> you know, I just hope that people will start listening to the, the, the right or the, you know, the, the reasonable voices, the, the folks trying to do the analysis on this and not those doing the snap kind of uh, argument. Yeah, and in Canada, that basically means Thomas you know and Basma Milani are, are, are two of the most sharpest reasonable voices on on. Middle East politics that we've got. So I would, if uh, you're out there looking to figure out what to read or which people on TV to trust, I would say focus on Thomas Cheneau, Baz Mamani, on the intelligence stuff. Maybe Stephanie Carbon and Leo West will be out there talking about this and, and Amar Amarsingham and uh, some other folks, because this is an intelligence failure. So the question is, where did the, where was the failure? 
and for our francophone listeners, I would note my colleague Francesco Cavatorta, um, who who does who's been doing covering a lot of other francophone uh, media. He's also a Middle East expert. Yeah, uh, Janelle goes uh, plays in both languages, but good to have some francophone voices as well. well I now, think it's important because uh, you know, as we know in Canada, there's not a whole lot of academics that actively do media in both languages. Um, a lot of people kind of stick to their to their native, and so I think it's really important that those people that can engage and understand in both official languages try to consume as much as they can from the experts because it's you know they're sometimes they're not saying the same things, they have different takes on it, and this is really one of the richnesses of Canada um, that you can bring those crowds together, and so you know I hope our listeners will appreciate that. Yes, and we should move on to the Canadian side of, of defense these days because the weekend's events have eclipsed the, the debate of last week, which is more and more news coming out that the defense budget is going to be cut. Or if you want to buy Bill Blair's defense of the cuts by saying the growth in defense budget is going to be slower than originally planned. Given that you are someone who studies burden sharing and you're wandering around Europe when this news comes out, have Europeans been paying attention to this latest fracas about the Canadian defense spending? Or they just assume the Canadians aren't going to spend and don't worry about it? Uh, frankly, most of our partners in Europe think that Canada is a little bit paranoid about it's worrying about 2% all the time. Like when I talk to people about it, they're basically like they think... Because nobody here in Central and Eastern Europe thinks that Canada is free riding or not doing enough. This is almost entirely something that North Americans think about Canada. <laughs> Sometimes maybe the Brits, but you know, when I bring it up, um, you know, most people, they know Canada doesn't spend 2%, but they don't think that Canada is not pulling its weight. And this is particularly true when I was in Latvia, you know, I know you've also been in Latvia, but I spoke with lots and lots of people. And, you know, in terms of what Canada is doing there, and the fact that Canada, I don't know if the that the news has made it to Ottawa, but uh, of course, Canada committed that it was going to increase its presence in Latvia. And it has come through the rumor vine that that's actually going to be the Van so it's going to be Quebec troops that will be being deployed to Latvia. Um, and so they've been told to start preparing for a sizable deployment. They don't know exactly how large it will be, but a, a quite sizable uh, deployment of Quebecers will be heading out uh, to Latvia uh, in the start of the next year. And so, again, these are also some of the, some of these countries make 2%. Some of these countries don't make 2%, but they are acutely aware that the Canadian economy and its budget is much larger than theirs. And so basically yeah. they understand the economics of it better than Canadians do. That to reach 2% would be so much money, so much more money. It just wouldn't even be feasible. And so, again, like it's Canada cares a lot about 2% because 2% is a political commitment. You know, it is like, again, this is a commitment that was made in a natal final stomach communique so it's got a level it's not it's a I, it's not a legal obligation but it's definitely a political commitment that's very important but you know at the end of the day i think most nato allies you know that i've and again by the time i leave here i will have gone through 10 different nato countries and some of them you know countries that are you know you know germany france um and most of those people, when I say, so you, what do you think about Canada at 2%? It's not something that they consider to be a huge political or defense issue for them because they see Canada doing plenty. Yeah. Well, the, the bigger thing is, is that we're making commitments that we can't support. So you mentioned the Latvia mission. We're sending essentially the nugget of a brigade. So we're going from 800 troops, which was originally 400 or 450, was 800, now it's 1,200 to 2,200 which means we have to send pretty much all the Van Dues there. And after the Van Dues are done, they'll be sending all of the RCR or 
PPCLI in whichever order that is, but basically we've got three brigades. They're gonna take turns doing it and it's very hard to be sustainable. And in order to sustain that, we need to spend more money. It's an expensive thing. So we've made a commitment to spend more money. NORAD modernization is something that we've made a commitment to spend more money to modernize the system, the warning systems in the NORAD. The personnel, uh, what they call now the reconstitution exercise, which is to reverse the declining recruitment and the retention problems with the personnel crisis we got. We're currently something around 16,000 people short in the military, and that becomes a self-reinforcing spiral. That requires money. So we need to spend more money in those things. And so we've been waiting for a defense policy update. Remember that? That was supposed to come out a while ago, and it was supposed to be before the budget to justify spending more money in the military. And us did, you know, we, we, we talked to Ottawa about it. We were, you know, for the House of Commons about it. And then it kind of silently went into, you know, when the, when the cabinet shuffle happened, it appears as though, uh, that, that also got that put down the, uh, you know, pushed down the line. Um, and I'm not sure if it's, if it's still true, but, um, I did, I did read that, uh, Blair still actually hasn't gotten his official mandate letter either from, from Trudeau. Nobody and, uh, has gotten mandate letters of the new shuffle yes. Yeah. So, th so the way to uh, assume they're operating by is the old mandate letter. The old mandate letter had defense policy update in there. When I was in Riga in June as part of a D&D public affairs trip, everybody was assuming that the defense policy update would come out around the time the NATO summit to explain how Canada was going to spend to keep its commitment. So the one thing I've been thinking about, and I don't know if it's true, is that there, the next time there's a defense budget update or next time there's a budget, there'll be more money for the military because they'll say, we're spending more money on these things, but we're gonna cut $1 billion out of operations because, or the rest of the budget because all of the other cabinet agencies are being asked to cut, you know, uh, their budgets a little bit. So it might be instead of spending, you know, lots more money on the military, we're spending lots more minus a billion, in which case the question still becomes, okay, we're spending more money on specific things. Again, I mentioned them, Latvia, NORAD, personnel. Where is that one billion going to come from? And in Blair's testimony last week, he talked about bureaucrats. And that always makes me nervous because the folks who are the civilians inside the Department of National Defense actually have jobs that are not that are that need to be done including managing the properties of of the military so that way the bases are places that people don't mind serving as opposed to rat infested moldy gross things that cause people to leave the military you need civilians to manage the procurement pro projects that way you actually spend the money you make the contracting you follow you you, you do the oversight over the contracting so that way you actually get the ships and the planes and the artillery and all the rest. The civilians who work in D&D are not just faceless bureaucrats who can be easily cut for budget uh, purposes. They actually have jobs and the fact that they've been short, the, the, their shortages of having enough civilians inside D&D has been identified as a critical problem, exacerbating the personnel crisis, making it hard to do the procurement. So it might be one of these things where we end up cutting the people that we need to actually solve or at least address the problems that we're facing. So I get the idea that we need to cut the deficit because Trudeau's facing a campaign in 2025 and the conservatives have accused them of spending too much money. But the world now is pretty, pretty complex. And we've realized, thanks to Ukraine, we need to spend more money on the artillery shells, which we don't have enough of. We need to spend money on 
anti-aircraft, anti-drones. So now you know we've seen pictures coming out of out of the conflict in, between Hamas and Israel of Hamas using drones to de to destroy very very modern Israeli tanks. So it's not just the Ukrainians are doing this to the Russians. It's like wherever we were go operate in the future, we will need to deal with a, the threat of drones hitting our our vehicles, armored or otherwise. Uh, so the, this talk about budget cuts just runs into the face of increased threats and increased commitments. So if we want to spend less money, we have to make less commu commitments. And that is not the pattern this government made. Well, and I think that it's also the, the environment in which Canada exists is becoming increasingly challenging for it. Um, you know, we didn't we haven't talked at all about the Arctic, but, you know, this is an area as well where Canada has made commitments to increase its presence, to offer more security and defense. Uh, and so one of the ways in which I think that Canada is um, trying to alleviate some of this is, for instance, what I have seen is Canada creating much closer relations with the Nordic countries. And so this has been a bit of a, you know, a packet that they have been after now for at least a year or two. It may be starting to show some level of, of success. So, for example, I know that um, the Finns have have been considering maybe contributing uh, to in, in uh, Latvia. Um, they've also, Canada has also approached the Swedes. And so will this actually put troops on the ground by those countries? I don't know. But, uh, you know, I, I think that Canada is trying to think, is um, conceptualizing a little bit differently, um, you know, who, who it, it collaborates with. Uh, and this is a good thing, but at the end of the day, again, I think this is also a bit kind of the the Canadian way of doing things is almost overcommitting and then trying to have to come back and be pr pragmatic about the reality of their economic situation and the reality of the of the, of the political situation. Um, and so we'll see if Trudeau is going to be able to to navigate or how Trudeau navigates that in terms of trying to to get reelected. And it's frustrating to me because this is actually a point where he has latitude. He could uh, that the Canadian public are not going to vote based on oh we want defense cuts. The public opinion has basically said they don't they would not mind having more money spent on defense. Exactly. Uh, it's not something that they'll get him votes, but it will cost him votes. And so he has but latitude, I mean, but the, the, that 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 discourse really more speaks to the other politicians and other political parties in terms of you know trying to reduce criticisms about how much is being spent. Um, and so, you know, as they say, let's spend less on defense, but they're not saying let's spend less on supporting Ukraine, even though a lot of those dollars are coming out of defense budgets. Uh, and so there's also a little bit of we need to be sure that we understand where all of these monies are coming from. And so as much as we want to support Ukraine and we are giving a lot of military supplies and a lot of financial support, those also mean that those things are no longer in Canada. And so there are consequences to that. We talked a little bit about ammunition. And one of the things that's probably going to be important over the next six months is the fact that with increasing demands for ammunition, the companies that sell it will be sending it to the places where it's going to be used and it's going to be paid for quickly. And Canada is not a country that's known for doing procurement very efficiently. And it's not a country that will be, for example, that U.S. firms will think is under threat. Right. If there's if there's an object there, if they have requests from Poland and from Canada um, for a bunch of munition, my guess is that they're probably going to be putting sending that over uh, across the Atlantic before they send it up across the border. 
Um, and this is just the reality of Canada's situation. Um, yeah. So there's also got to be a little bit of taking things with a, a bit of pragmatic salt, we'll say. Well, I think that's a, a good way to conclude today's uh, conversation that we need a lot more pragmatic salt sprinkled everywhere. And we also need to be more resilient. So the good news is our next segment is an interview with Megan Wilkin and Labna Sharif. Uh, they are two psychology professors at the Royal Military College who have a new podcast. Actually, it's not a new podcast. It's a new podcast new to the CDSN podcast network called Resilience Plus. And the idea of this is to help people understand how to respond to trauma, to uh, PTSD, to moral injury, to stress and anxiety. Um, the pictures coming out of, the, out of Israel and Palestine this weekend, I'm sure, are generating all kinds of issues uh, for people. And please, don't, you don't need to watch all the videos on TV of the violence. We know, or on the internet, we know the violence that exists. So you don't need to force yourself to watch some of that stuff. Uh, so that's step one. Step two is to listen to the Resilience po uh, Podcast. And step three is to listen to the next segment of our podcast where I talk to Megan and Lavna about why they set up this podcast and what their podcast is doing. Vanessa, I'm glad that you're learning a lot in your travels, even if you're not wanting to drink all the wonderful beer that flows in Eastern Europe. Uh, it sounds to me from, from what you're doing, you're, you've got a lot to tell B&B &B about this new uh, center of excellence that they're building, that uh, by being the pioneer of being perhaps the first person to wander around a bunch of these places to develop comparative lessons about what works, what doesn't work, who to rely upon, who not to rely upon. Uh, and, and what you've hinted at in our conversation before we started taping, uh, suggest you really need to talk to the folks at D&D quickly about who they should put responsibility on in terms of certain allies who are unreliable. They may show yes. up and they may not perform. Uh, so yes. I, I'm sure that when you come back, there, I'd say. <laughs> I'm sure that when you come back uh, to Canada and brief the folks at D&D, they will really benefit from, from your research. So uh, the Minds program operating as designed, where you're developing policy-relevant research through a close, rigorous, empirical analysis of a number of uh, research centers. So I'm glad you're out there in the field. I'm sure your friends and family miss you very much and look forward to you having come back home. But I'm glad that you're getting a lot out of this uh, sabbatical. Well, again, uh, you know, without the CDSN and support of Minds and, of course, yourself, kind of keeping us all together as director, uh, none of this would be possible. This kind of this idea, this project would not have landed in my lap. And, um, you know, I'm just I'm very fortunate to be out here meeting so many people and really just finding that folks really appreciate Canada and Canada's role in NATO more than I think a lot of Canadians do. Uh, and so that's been quite interesting. And in the next couple of weeks, there was this uh, the Canadian Center on Climate Change was already covered in the Czech uh, newspaper. And I'm actually going to be re-interviewed by the journalist that wrote that. And she's going to write an entire article on Canada and NATO. And so um, I look forward to be able to share that as well um, with our audiences. Excellent. Well, good luck with the rest of your trip and look forward to seeing you back in Canada soon. Thanks for joining us. And that's all. Have a good afternoon. Welcome back to Battle Rhythm. Today we have the hosts of Resilience Plus, a new podcast for the CDSN Podcast Network. We're very excited to have them on board. And so we have with us uh, Megan Wilkin and Lamna Sharif, both uh, folks from uh, Kingston from, I want to say RMC. Both of you are at RMC. Yes, they're nodding we're their heads. So 
I, I, I had, I've been told these things and I don't always uh, remember what I've been told. So uh, could you introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, we'll start with uh, Megan since she's on the top of my screen. Sure, so hi, it's uh, Dr. Megan Wilkin and I'm the team lead for the Resilience Plus podcast, which is an education initiative under the Resilience Plus program. I've been at RMC now, oh, People say it's a long time, but it's gone by really quickly. It's only been about five or six years, but it feels like a blink. I'm a professor in the psych department there and obviously I work with Resilience Plus, not just with the podcast, but also research and some other facets of the program. Um, background wise, in terms of uh, who I am, I'm a stress researcher by trade. So my uh, graduate work and my undergraduate work for, for, uh, primarily focused on uh, stress and how the body handles stress and my uh, my sort of passion area is the brain. So what happens to the brain when it's stressed out at different points in uh, in life? But the thing about stress research is it's kind of stressful when you're reading <laughs> studies of people who uh, are going through hard times. Uh, obviously, stress has a pretty hefty impact on the body. And so towards the end of my graduate education, I started becoming more interested in the other side of the coin. Um, how can we talk about resilience? What does resilience look like in the brain? Um, so yeah, we go through these stressful things, but a lot of us go through big stressors and come out the other side relatively unscathed. Um, and so that's where I started uh, being interested in resilience as a topic. And then when I came to RMC, uh, I met Dr. Sharif, and who's very passionate about the topic of resilience. So it was uh, a fateful day uh, beside the photocopier in our department that we struck up a conversation about resilience. And as they say, the rest is history. So I'll pass it over to her for a, an introduction. Yeah, very, very nice uh, day that day, uh, Megan. Uh, so thank you very much for the invitation. My name is Lavna Sharif, and uh, I am an associate professor in the Department of uh, Military Psychology and Leadership um, at RMC, at the Royal Military College of Canada. And I'm also the chair in resilience at RMC and the director of the Resilience Plus program at RMC and RMC Saint-Jean. And uh, the program um, actually is uh, for officer cadets, uh, faculty and staff. We deliver character-based uh, resilience research, education, training, mentoring, and coaching. Uh, and um, we uh, try to uh, empower uh, the officer cadets, um, uh, faculty, and, and staff uh, through many um, um, avenues, so uh, the podcast is one of them. Um, my 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 uh, my background is in cognitive psychology. However, a few years ago, I discovered a passion for uh, positive psychology, and uh, this is how I started uh, doing certificates in positive psychology, in resilience training, in mindfulness. And and so on. So uh, and uh, uh, when I when I discovered this the science of positive psychology and I discovered all the tools and the strategies that help us um, thrive, I um, I thought I I need to share this with with uh, the officer cadets, with the faculty and staff, and this is how the program started. Uh, so in the beginning, it was about education, then training, then research. Uh, coaching and mentoring, as I said. Uh, so, so yeah, this is uh, this is who we are. Well, that's an amazing combination of stress researcher and positive psychology. I, I should have. I've never heard of e either of those things. When I hear stress research, I'm thinking more about 
the stress of doing research or stressed out researchers. Um, so how'd you get into stress research, Megan? So um, it's a funny story. I am the type of person that sort of just walks the stones of life as they come to me. I never really was the person that uh, started out with a plan of what I wanted to be with one exception. When I went to university, I wanted to be a photojournalist and uh, I was on an English scholarship to go to school. Um, but at the time, and I'm going to date myself here, uh, 9-11 had just happened. And uh, when I that went to the very... Yes, which is ironic because today is the anniversary, of course, when we're recording this. But um, so I went to university with this intention of going off to the wilds of Africa or the jungles of South Southeast Asia to photograph for National Geographic. That was actually what I wanted to do. But in my very first class at university, my very first professor walked out and said, if you want a job at the end of the these four years of education, you better be prepared to go to war because that is where the money will be, right? Documenting what is about to unfold after 9-11. And immediately in that class, after he finished his sentence, my mother's voice popped into the back of my head and said, absolutely not will you be going anywhere to document any type of conflict. So very quickly, I thought, I need a backup plan. And part of that backup plan was... Um, to go through and become an educator. And part of uh, the training at my university at the time was to take introduction to psychology. And I fell in love with the topic. And one of the things that I fell in love with was how the brain works and neurons and how specifically how we process stress. Um, and it's a, it's a universal thing, stress. We all experience it to some degree. Our bodies either process it well or not. Um, it, and it's one of the things that makes us human. I think at least is uh, the experience of stress. What makes us uh, not uh, universal is how we process it. Obviously there's a lot of nuance there and a lot of different impacts. Um, and then my research sort of shifted when I moved to Kingston to do my graduate work at Queens. I started looking more into the neuroscience as opposed to stress physiology, which is what my background was in at the undergraduate level. Um, and so really starting to look into how does stress change cell structure and all of that nerdy wonderfulness. Although, you know, someone out there does study the stress of research and being a researcher. I'm so sure there more must than, be some more than one. Yes. Yeah, there must be someone. It's not my area, but I'm sure there is uh, somebody out there looking at that topic. And it was just, I kind of just fell into the topic. It interested me. I stayed with it, much like uh, Dr. Sharif was talking about her uh, falling into positive psychology and just be, just being caught up in the topic. And it just really interesting. In, it was very interesting to me. And uh, yeah, the rest is history, like 20 plus years later, just uh, still... You know, if a stress paper comes across my desk, I will read it, uh, even though my uh, research interests have uh, shifted a little bit. Uh, I will always be a stress researcher by trade. It's just it's just one of those topics I love for whatever weird reason. Uh, and, and and that's the funky thing about academia is there's there's a scholarship on, on pretty much everything. But lots of times you don't realize it exists until you bump into it. I didn't. As I said, I didn't realize there was such a thing as stress research, but it makes complete sense. I was on a a slack with some friends of mine who were, who were talking to each other about how devastating stress is to just the body and the mind. Uh, and I guess that's where positive psychology comes in. Exactly. And, uh, and actually it's, it goes exactly in the same, uh, um, same sense of the story because 
um, the way I, I actually uh, started to be interested in, in positive psychology is because I was uh, on sabbatical and um, I was supposed to be doing what I love doing, which is research and, and writing the paper. And um, I was going through so much stress because the research and, 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 and writing the paper uh, and I was like, that cannot be. I, I'm I'm doing what I'm supposed to be passionate about, and yet I am so stressed, and I, I mean, my whole family is is uh, is feeling that stress. So I thought to myself, okay, I need to help myself. I need to find the tools and the strategies to help me uh, deal with this. And and uh, and and I started digging as a researcher in in the field of psychology. And uh, I found uh, this, these, you know, articles about positive psychology and positive tools and positive interventions. And um, I started to experiment on myself, on and uh, on my family, on my kids, and uh, and I, I I I saw the results. It was impressive. Um, simple strategies, things that we know about, that we already heard about. You know, gratitude. Um, positive reinforcement uh talking about what's right with you and 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 building on on your strengths rather than trying to fix your your uh, flaws and um savoring and mindfulness and it did just uh resonate so much with me and i found myself doing things that uh really really were um very things that were very simple but yet very effective and um, I thought I'm not I'm never going back to what I used to do and how I used to live my life. And this is how I am deciding to become. And this is the person I want to become. And uh, and it's been now uh, um, five years that I've been really practicing positive psychology every day in my life with my kids, with my students, with 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 people around me. And uh, it's just a way of being for me right now. Yeah. Excellent. Well, it sounds like it's a perfect uh, partnership. So tell us a little bit about the Resilience Plus program before we get into the podcast itself. I'll, I'll go ahead. So, uh, yeah, so the program. Uh, so, yeah, so we have five pillars in the program, uh, research, education, training, uh, mentoring and coaching. And the podcasts fit into the pillar of education. So um, uh, when we talk about uh, resilience, we we there is there is obviously the what we do in class, the theory, but also resilience is a skill, and and like any other skill, you have to practice it. And so one of one way of of practicing your resilience is is to listen and to 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 listen to people who have been uh, going through um difficulties but also to practice all the tools and the strategies that you're learning or that life is 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 teaching you um so um when i started teaching resilience in classrooms and i started teaching resilience uh with officer cadets uh in the beginning um I, I felt like, yeah, that's good. And the uh, officer cadets are there and they are sitting and we're trying not to do it with that like death by PowerPoint. And we're trying to have as many scenarios as possible and as many examples as possible. But then I was also under the impression that uh, not everybody learned the same way. And we know that not everybody learned the same way. And we wanted really to make sure that all the officer cadets have as many 
um, channels as possible for them to learn about resilience, not only being in classroom or not only having those exercises to, uh, to practice. Um, so, so I did approach uh, Megan, and we were going through the pandemic, and we did we we needed to find other ways also to uh, pass the information. Um, and so, because of the pandemic, we were online, and it was even harder to get the student attention when they are all in Zoom, and we're like like puppets, you know, they are trying to get their attention. Uh, so one way of doing that it was was maybe to use uh, real stories, real people, and and also benefit from the wisdom of of uh, of of the guests because we know we all know that we have stories of resilience and we all know that uh, we we carry some 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 wisdom uh, with us. So. Um, so this is how uh, I, I approach Megan, and uh, I know that she's uh, uh, brave, and that she would take on uh, some some uh, some uh, really exciting opportunities. Um, and I said, "Hey, did you uh, did you think about a podcast or trying podcast?" And she said, "No." And I said, "Perfect. We're gonna we're gonna start a podcast." <laughs> and so I will let her finish the story because she knows to tell it better than me because she's the one who lived it actually. <laughs> Yeah, so the podcast did arise from a really sort of happenstance situation. Lobna did approach me and she's like, hey, do you know anything about this? And I was like, absolutely not. I know nothing about recording or mixing of sounds or editing or any of the stuff that goes on behind the scenes with a podcast. But I'll give it a try. I'll see what uh, I'll see what I can do. Now, we were obviously in the pandemic, so we were forced into the online environment, which made it a little bit easier to connect with uh, guests. Right. So they, they, it was easy for them to hop on Zoom the same way that we were hopping on Zoom for our classes, which meant that we had the ability and the opportunity to connect with people you know, across the country, some of our guests were overseas, down in the States. Um, and instead of having the expense of trying to travel to them to connect with them, we were able to do it digitally. And we became this operation of just learning to do by doing, right? You don't have to be an expert and perfect at everything to just start and give it a try. So we set a goal of four episodes. If we could create four episodes, we would consider ourselves a success. And so I was working with um, one of our student ambassadors. So part of our program at RMC is uh, we have a senior team uh, made up of a variety of members that are not officer cadets or naval cadets on campus. And then we have a junior ambassador team that are the sort of boots on the ground student perspective. So students have a voice with our program. The ambassador that I was working with at the time uh, was very knowledgeable about podcasts. He listened to podcasts quite regularly, even though he didn't have the sort of knowledge of how to produce one. So he was uh, an avid listener of podcasts. And uh, he said to me, we can do this. Like he was the one who gave me sort of the vibrato that I could take on this challenge and uh, you know we just sort of chatted about what he would want to listen to as a as a podcast listener and also what he would want as a as a student on campus what tool would he want us to produce and uh, and I asked him for a wish list I asked him for like if you could have five people across these episodes you know we set a goal of four episodes thinking like somebody's going to turn us down and say no to being a guest because not everybody wants to uh to be a guest on a podcast but um and he gave me his wish list and at the top of that wish list was astronaut chris hadfield and um i said okay 
you know, where if that's who you want, he said to me, you know, I don't really have he heroes. He never had heroes growing up. He didn't have childhood people that he looked up to. Uh, but if he could talk to Chris Hadfield, no pressure, uh, then he would consider the podcast a success and his time to be valuable on the podcast. And one night I was working from home and I thought, well, it never hurts to ask, right? The worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to get a no, Chris Hadfield's not available, or you're going to send this email into digital space and it's just going to end up in the cybersphere and nobody, it's not going to land in anybody's inbox. So we, on a wish and a prayer, I sent that uh, message off into digital space. And about a few days later, my phone started blowing up while I was in class and it's buzzing and it's buzzing and it's buzzing and I can't answer it because I'm mid lecture and it's both Lubna and my student ambassador who are like, oh my God, you need to check your messages. You need to check your email. Chris Hadfield's team has gotten back to you. Now, sidebar is that Chris Hadfield happens to be RMC alumni. So we had a little bit of a, a doorway open for us there. Um, and it was great as a, as a first guest to have as your guinea pig guest <laughs> was Chris Hadfield. He was amazing. He's very obviously well-spoken as a public figure. He made the process of interviewing our first podcast guest very, very easy for us. So we started off on a very interesting note, but had a very um, kind and easy to talk to guest for that very first episode. And since then, we've kind of operated on the same philosophy. We're going to learn to do by doing. We make mistakes, we've lost data, we've messed up in our editing, uh, we've had, we've lost episodes, like it's, it's a process, right? Um, but no person is too big. So if every year when there's new ambassadors that join our podcast team, I ask them for their wish list and there's no person too big or too small. So we've had, yes, quote unquote celebrities, if you will, like Chris Hadfield. But we've also had people that don't have this public facing persona, right? But the thing that's universal amongst all guests, regardless of whether they're famous or not, whether they're military or civilian, whether they're, you know, uh, an academic or not, like all of these different boxes that we put people into, everybody has a story to tell about resilience. The same way that everybody experiences stress, everybody has uh, an experience with resilience and whether they realize it or not in some fashion have demonstrated resilience. And so that's the thing that has been most remarkable in my mind across the podcast is when we ask people, what does resilience mean to you? Everybody so far has had a slightly different answer. There's some common themes that pop up over time, but everybody has a little nuanced answer that I just I'm amazed by because it's this universal thing but it's really personal and it's really um like I said nuanced to the individual and like Lavna said when you listen to someone tell their story of resilience whether that be about the time that they failed their PT and how they overcame that when they didn't get promoted when they lost somebody that they loved in their family or whatever their story might be when we listen to those stories, it gives each individual listener a little bit of hope, maybe, or a little bit of fire that they, too, can demonstrate resilience. So that's uh, that's what keeps the podcast going is when we have those uh, stories of resilience to kind of fuel us forward and know that everything's going to be OK. Uh, 
I was coughing earlier, so that's why I turned off my mic. Um, and Melissa will get rid of that. So you give you said you you set us up for multiple definitions or understandings of resilience. Uh, I guess Labda, what is your con conception of resilience, and how does it differ from Vegas? <laughs> that's a good question. Um, so for me, there is obviously the scientific definition of resilience and the cliche, which is bouncing back. Uh, however, I like to provide my students with more than this. Um, resilience is about um, bouncing forward. And, and uh, I even talk about anti-fragility. Uh, resilience is about learning from your mistakes and then going forward and putting those what you learned and so that allows you to thrive and to um to to flourish uh we we all have uh different life experiences and we are all subject to stress and obstacles uh it's all about what do i do with this and how do i learn and how do i grow from 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 this experience. So that is what I try to teach my my officer cadets and my students and my ambassadors, and the message that I want to uh, share with with the people around me. Well, that's excellent. Um, and what's interesting is, I think if you were talking about this in a non-academic setting, people would be like, "Well, you know, this this sounds kind of new agey, your positive psychology," but. It sounds like what you're working on is stuff based on good old fashioned social science where you've, you know, it's, it's, it's looking at how the, the social scientists or psychologists have figured out how people respond emotionally to stress and how to arm them better to, to deal with incoming stress. I guess the, the question I have is over the course of the several years that we've been doing the CDSN, we've had people talk to us about moral injury and talk to us about post-traumatic stress and the, how those are distinct. And, I guess I'm curious as to whether you you're in, in developing people to be resilient, resilient plus, are you aiming at one or the other or both or something larger than that? I mean, what when you say resilient, resilient from what, I guess, is, is it just stress in general or is it that there are particular kinds of things that impact people that you're trying to get them to be resilient from? Given that you're at the Royal Military College, I can't help but think that it's more, you know, the, the big we tend to think mostly about PTSD when thinking about the military, although I've been educated by some of our previous podcasts, that's about moral injury. So what is it that you're trying to get people to be resilient from? Yeah. Um, so whether it is, so, so for me, we're working with uh, officer cadets and mm -hmm. this is a vulnerable population because uh, these are, um, students who are trying to do their academics, but also at the same time, they are learning to become uh, the officers that they're going to become. And so this process is, is very difficult and very different from uh, the process that uh, any other civilian student uh, has to go through. Um, and, uh, and, and, and what I'm trying to teach my officer cadet student and also staff and faculty is to be resilient in face of adversity uh, and, and, and uh, whether it is, and I'm, I'm trying to prepare them, give them the tools and the strategies to, to, to be ready. Because instead of being reactive, I'm trying to, the programs 
tries to be proactive and and so give them the the knowledge but also the strategies so that they are prepared when adversity is going to strike now now there are different kinds of life events and and well. adversity that somebody can uh, can face um for my officer cadets is the stress we, we focus on life on campus and how can you bounce back uh, from uh, all the events that happen on campus, all the whatever, whatever, where, where it's exams, or um, for example, as Megan was mentioning, uh, PTs, which is um, uh, physical fitness tests, uh, or or it can be also on a personal level separation, uh, long long distance relationships. So we try to pre to to give them with those tools and strategies, um, and prepare them, and 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 hopefully, when they are gonna become the officers and the leaders of tomorrow, because they have the, the already those uh, this knowledge and this uh, toolbox, uh, mm -hmm. they can adjust it to um, other uh, life experiences that are a little bit um, harder or 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 or, or bigger. Okay, well, that's that's super helpful. Um, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> Melissa's got to clear out the, the video, the audio for this part. So you have a podcast uh, on Resilience Plus. You've had a number of episodes. So I guess besides talking to Canada's most famous astronaut, what what is your second favorite episode or second highlight from your first a couple of years of podcasting? Ooh, that's a hard one. Ah. Pick your favorite child. I can jump in here. Um, I think it's easy to land on Chris Hadfield because he was our first guest and because he has, you know, Canada's sort of profile, facing profile. The people that I've actually liked to talk to the most are people that are a little bit more shy, that they don't think that they're resilient, that they, when I contact them to say, hey, you know, you were nominated by one of our ambassadors. Um, would you like to be on the podcast? They're like, I don't, I don't have a story to tell. Why, why am I, why are you contacting me to talk like I'm an expert about resilience? I don't know anything about this. And I respond back with, you've lived a life you have a story to tell, right? There is something across either your academic career, your military career, or in, in terms of some of our younger guests, even if they're just a student, like you're you're just starting out, you still have experienced something and demonstrated some level of resilience. So I actually like the guests that have a lower profile in terms of like the public facing kind of profiles because they are the, the sort of unsuspecting sort of diamond in the rough story that they they don't really think of themselves as resilient. And by the end of their interview, they're like, they, you can kind of see a change in their body posture or how they're talking. And they kind of get this sense of, hey, I, I am resilient. I do have a story to tell. And um, those have been my favorite guests, uh, to be to be truthful with you. And the other thing that we've started doing, uh, which stems from our program, is with each guest, we start offering up to them as a way of thanking them what we see in them 
in terms of their character strengths. So part of our program is uh, founded on uh, Martin Seligman's work of character strengths and virtues. And uh, it's the idea that all of us, regardless of where we live and how we grew up, are born with these 24 character strengths that we can pull on and rely on in different situations. And um, at the end of each recording, we sit down with the guests and all of the members of our team, and there's maybe three or four present, we'll give them a character strength that they have noticed in the person. So oh, cool. um, it's just, it's the language that we speak as a team. So it's our way of saying thank you and, and, and seeing people's reaction. Uh, again, usually it's, uh, they're, they're not prepared for it. They're unassuming and it takes them a little bit by surprise, but to see them have a little moment of self-reflection and to see that they are a pillar of resilience and they are able to tell a story even if they don't have sort of the profile of some of our either higher ranking military members or you know sort of public facing quote-unquote celebrities yeah well excellent i try to give you a, a stressful question and you guys were resilient in, in responding to it by not taking my bait uh i Looking forward to hearing more, uh, listening to your podcast. I think we need more positivity and more positive psychology in our lives. Um, the past three years have been pretty brutal. Uh, and I think that uh, we've gotten through it, but we may not have gotten through it as well as we could have if, the, if your podcast existed five years earlier. Uh, no, I'm not blaming you guys. Uh, I'm just saying uh, we could have used this earlier. Uh, so, Lavna and Megan, really glad to have you join the CDSN podcast network team. Um, how often are your episodes going to come out? Uh, so, we offer a monthly uh, offering, and uh, we are bilingual, bilingual podcast. So, we offer uh, as often as we can on a monthly basis uh, an episode in both English and French, and it's roughly the same content obviously our guests are not robots that they can just hit pause rewind and translate uh, the exact story into the other language but for the most part uh, the message is the same regardless of the language that you listen to it in fantastic and we found that listeners store of our frank friend of one podcast like it because it helps government workers learn french so they can be less stressed out when they prepare for their exams to qualify for higher positions within their various bureaucracies and hierarchies so I, I definitely think this will be great for people who are trying to learn French as well to get the same content in English and in French. It'll help them learn a little bit better. Uh, so multiple reasons to listen to the podcast. We're looking forward to having you join us. Megan and Lamna, thanks for joining Battle Rhythm's episode today and the network that we all belong to. So thank you very much. Thank you for being here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.